Go ahead and turn uh, in your New Testaments to the book of Titus. We'll begin there in just a moment. The lesson this morning started out with, by a little note card. Uh, in my morning devotional time, uh, a lot of times I read text and maybe I do a lot of highlighting, look for things I haven't seen or things I have seen that I need to see again. And uh, Months ago, though, I was reading through the book of Titus and the section of scripture we're going to talk about today is a section that jumped off the page. It's not that one that I'd not seen before, but just one that I just kind of looked at a little deeper in that there's a lot being said. And I just kind of wrote down on this little note card that I've kind of kept in all the little notes. I have a little stack of notes of things that hit me and that I think maybe I want, want to talk about this one day or go back to it in some way. So I thought I'm just going to bring this with me today because it's kind of an inspiration because I just wrote it early in the morning as, I, as things were hitting me. But uh, I want to just read this text first of all, then we'll talk a little bit about its background and then the significance of it and then just go right through it. The book of Titus, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Amen. This is the section of scripture that we'll talk about this morning. Uh, the key text, again, is Titus 2, 11, 14. Go ahead and bring that up, Jay. And the idea, I think, that we want to grasp this morning is this very idea of grasping the grace of God. We are very familiar with the word grace, uh, but probably don't always grasp its magnitude, especially biblically. We sing the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, and, and the writer of that song captured the idea that grace is amazing, but I want to think about how the word grace is kind of watered down in our culture, how that, and sometimes we have to recapture words in their magnitude. Uh, the word grace in English uh, most commonly is used, uh, someone's very gracious in their kindness, they might say thank you a lot, or please, or they carry themselves in a dignified way, and someone might describe them as having a lot of grace. Uh, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, I think, was considered to be a woman of great grace, Princess Diana, uh, people that just carry themselves a certain way, and that's, a certainly, uh, that's certainly an appropriate way to talk about someone having grace. But it's not really biblical grace as we look at it. Another way we use the word grace is someone might ask, could you say grace? Even though that's not really a biblical expression, we know what a person means. Could you say a prayer like before food is offered? which is certainly a biblical thing to do. But sometimes people see the idea of grace as simply uh, confined to that idea of saying a prayer or being very nice. But in Scripture, grace is always amazing because it's something that God gives us that has no parallel. We couldn't even do the same. It's what God has done for us through His grace. The dictionary definition of grace is simply unmerited favor. 
And every word has to have a dictionary definition, but that's just the beginning of what this concept is contained within the word grace. If you look at chapter 3 of Titus, beginning with verse 4, we begin to see a little bit about the idea of grace. Titus 3, verse 4. We're going to go back to 2.11, by the way. But uh, Titus is told in chapter 3 by the Apostle Paul, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of, by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we might become justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So here this idea of grace is brought up again by the Apostle Paul as he writes to Titus. But he says in verse 5, God has saved us not because of righteous things we have done. So part of grace is the idea that God did something for us we could not have done for ourselves. But we're going to look, though, not only that idea, but the response of God's people to the idea that God has saved us from something we could not save ourselves from. Just a little background to the book of Titus. Uh, Titus was a preacher. Uh, he was sent to the island of Crete uh, to work with the churches there that were very infant in their stage as far as how long they'd existed. And they were in an area that was just the opposite of what the Christian faith honors. Look at verse 5 of Titus chapter 1. Uh, Paul tells Titus why he sent him there. Uh, he says, verse 5, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, just stopping there, we find that appointing elders to create order and spiritual leadership was important uh, in the churches in the island of Crete. But he says, I also left you there to uh, finish what was left unfinished. There's a lot of teaching that still had to be done on the island of Crete. And the island of Crete was no normal city. Um, look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Uh, look the way Crete was described back in the day. Uh, verse 12, it says, One of Crete's own prophets, Paul's writing here, One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds verse 13, And he surely has told the truth. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they will be sound in the faith We'll just pause there. Here, the island of Crete had a reputation of being liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Uh, and then Paul says, that's the truth. That's the environment in which the gospel was told to flourish on the island of Crete. I tried to think in preparation for this lesson, what's a parallel? Well, I looked on the island of Crete, and it appears in Acts chapter 27, the apostle Paul goes through Crete to get to Rome. Crete is an island. It is on the far eastern side of the Mediterranean. Um, you can visit it today. Very beautiful place. Back in the day, 2,000 plus years ago, it was just the opposite. It had a lot of uh, ports on the island. It was basically a place where pirates would go and hang out, <laughs> restock, and go back to being pirates. If you've ever ridden the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland or Disney World, I remember as a kid just going on that boat and just my eyes were wide open seeing the lifestyle of a pirate. And uh, 
That's what you ought to think of when you think of the island of Crete. It was a wild place to live. No rules. Everybody did what they wanted and lived a very immoral, excessive life. But yet this is a place where the gospel went. And people were converted to Christ. And they were taught the ways of the Lord. But they had to be repeatedly told, here's how you ought to live. Because they lived in an environment that was very hostile. We today live in an environment that's very hostile to the Christian faith, especially in this area. That doesn't mean we become holier than thou, or we try to think we're better than other people, but we instead need to be reminded, here's what our calling is. Because you're not going to hear it anywhere else. It's not going to be on the news, it's not going to be in the local colleges, it's not going to be in any social media. That is what we're called to be. So again, Paul tells them what they ought to be, what they ought to be and what we too ought to be what we ought to be. I see four things in this text that we'll look at that are worthy of our attention and uh, application. First of all, we find in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, that God's grace is far-reaching. God's grace is far-reaching. The Apostle Paul wants Titus to teach, here's the importance of what's happened in your life. Before you make any changes, see what God has done. Look at verse 11 again, Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Again, the grace of God is His unmerited favor that He intervened into our existence with His Son. No one was asking for His Son. No one thought their sin was that great of a deal. But God intervenes. He sends His Son. No one wanted Him. They tried to kill Him as an infant. They harassed him, they challenged him, argued with him all along the way, except for a few that recognized what he was giving. Then eventually they killed him because they didn't like what he was saying. But through that death that God orchestrated, and the son willingly gives himself over to, God provides salvation to all mankind. Who will accept it? Who will come to God and receive this gift? So... Paul tells Titus, for God's grace has appeared. God has done something for us. He's intervened in what I always say in my sermons, our terminal condition. Paul says in Romans, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are dead in the water concerning where we stand with God if it was not for the intervention of Jesus Christ. We have sins that cannot be self-medicated. We can't get rid of them. We can't pretend they don't exist. We can't compare ourselves to other people. We can't do enough good to make up for them. We are simply stuck with an appointment with eternity of consequence and punishment because of that sin, but God intervenes through His Son. So God's grace has appeared, offering salvation, offering the way out of that judgment and punishment. The life buoy has been thrown out in that life buoy to us for a drowning culture is Jesus Christ. But notice here again the magnitude of how far-reaching God's grace is. Uh, not only has the answer been extended, but it says to all people. We live in a world where people are divided by social classes, by wealth, by skin color. We could not live in a more divided world. Yet here we find something that knows no bounds related to culture, skin color, wealth, where you grew up, what you have, what you don't have. God's grace is extended to all people. It's the greatest offer ever given. And it addresses our greatest need. That is our problem with sin. There is no greater gift. 
There's nothing better that's ever been given mankind than the gift of God's Son. So a lot of times we simply have to recognize the magnitude of what we have. Just this morning, Elise and I were just watching this little clip from, I guess, a Warriors game. I think it was last night. It was after the game. I may be wrong on the details. But uh, Clay, and now son, my, his last name, Thompson, I apologize. I'm going to be in trouble when I get home. Clay Thompson, star player of the Warriors, overall great. And the way you guys said that was Thompson. The hostility here this morning. But uh, I think it was right after the game. He had, it was a meetup with a young man who was wheelchair bound. And Clay Thompson had provided monetarily and through a gift a beautiful new wheelchair not one that was a get around every day, but one that you could take on the court. And a lot of times you've seen wheelchair-bound people that are, that are on the court, and they can do all kinds of athletic things if you just have the right wheelchair that you can spin around quickly. And that young man was immediately brought to tears. Amen. And as you see many things on television where someone is granted something they never expected, and they never would have acquired on their own, but someone gave it to them. The overwhelming emotions that are right there. And I think that's the idea here, that God has given us something we don't deserve. Uh, God has appeared and offers salvation to all people. It's a far-reaching gift. Well, let's look at our response. And this is the response that was needed on the island of Crete, and it's also needed with us today. Even if we've been believers for many years, we always have to go back to this. We find also in this text that God's grace calls us to a radical obedience. God's grace calls us to a radical obedience. As we begin verse 12, we'll find that Paul doesn't tell Titus, just make sure they feel really good about their grace. Now, God doesn't tell Titus to say, well, make sure they are always really emotional about it. They sing a lot of emotional songs about God's grace because they always have to feel what God did for them. We should feel what God does for us. We should sing about it. But notice Paul's directive to Titus. Here's what they need to do, though, about it. Verse 12, God's grace, it says, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is a radical obedience. A radical means it's unusual, it's different, and for many people, it will seem over the top. Or maybe even, how can I do this? But Paul still says God's grace, that is the gift of his son, still does something. It teaches us, doesn't just make us feel good about our lives, but it teaches us to now live differently. It teaches us, first of all, to say no to ungodliness. And instead, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Let's just take up the first one. It teaches us to say no. That's a challenge of our lives. <laughs> to say no to the things that are destructive to us. About a month ago, one of my modern world history students came in early to my classroom. A lot of times students will float in early to the classroom. And usually when they come in kind of early, which is any time before the bell, uh, they come in five minutes. They've got something they want to tell me. Um, a lot of times my job is simply to take notice of that and quit sorting papers and getting ready for the lesson. But think about what they might want to tell me. He kind of walks up to me. His name is Rafiq. 
and he hands me a, what looked like a coin. And I looked at it, and it looked familiar, like I'd seen this before, something like that. It had a kind of a triangle on the back of it and some words. Some of you may already know kind of what this is, but a few years ago, someone showed me something very similar. And I said, well, what is this, Will? What is this? It was another person gave me something like this, wanted me to see it. He goes, this little, what looked like a coin, he says, means I've been sober for 30 years. And AA give, gave that to me. I thought, 30 years of not touching something that was destroying your life that always will be attractive to you, and you just have to say no to it. That's a monumental thing. And here, years later, this student was kind of showing me the same thing, but he's 16 years old, and he had just been sober 30 days. But he wanted me to see this. Because for him, that was a major accomplishment. Think about anything in your life that's your problem area. To stay free from that for 30 days, let alone 30 years. You said no to something <laughs> that always wants you to say yes. That's why when Paul tells Titus, make sure that they're learning to say no to ungodliness, that's a major thing. Because just as Jesus knows all of our weakness, so does Satan, and he repeatedly tempts us with the same things, to go to the same places, to be around the same people, to indulge in the same substances, to maintain certain relationships, or to, in, to try out ones that, hey, we know this is not right. To say no to that is a challenge, to say the least. But Paul tells Titus, you still have to tell him to say no to ungodliness. And ungodliness is anything that's simply against what God tells you to do. You may not agree with it. You may not like it. You may not think that it's that wrong. It might make you feel good. It might be seen as right by everybody else. But sometimes you just have to say no to it. Amen. Just uh, Friday, I had an incident with another student in class. Love him to death. Uh... He likes to wear a sweatshirt, and this is the second time he's done it at school, that says Budweiser, King of Beers. Well, out on the street, that's fine. But the educational code of the state of California and the educational rules of San Mateo High School say you cannot wear any shirt that promotes drugs, alcoholic beverages, pornography, anything like that. Well, this is the second time he's worn that. And... It's a, it's a bright white sweatshirt, and he has some bright white sweats that go with it. Like he deliberately wanted to see what we would do. He was told to turn it inside out last time. He reluctantly did it, and, uh, but put up a big, ah. Sure, <laughs> he looked good. It was nice, but I came up to him, and I'll, I'll just call him another name, uh, other real name, in case he's watching this. Uh, Ricky, we'll call him Ricky. I go, Ricky, you know Last time in stocks class, you told you cannot wear this. Oh, Mr. Mulligan, it's just, a, it's just a word. It's just a word. It's just a beer. And like he was really trying to make his case. And I go, come on, let's come outside and talk. And I go, Ricky, you know. You know it may not be that big of a deal to you. And I know everyone around here drinks. But you, uh, as far as your culture, community, and things like that, every culture, we're all into the, as far as this is seen as accepted. But you know the school rule is you can't wear things promoting that. Well, it's just a shirt. And, and he was not going to let go of this. And the assistant principal happened to be walking down the hall who had known about 
his difficulty with this, and we both kind of worked with him. And, but eventually, he said, all right. And he walks back to his desk, and he already had a T-shirt on underneath it, and he turns it inside out, and he puts it on, and sits down and starts copying his notes just like he should be doing. I thought, well, that's pretty good. And I brought him a cold water later to set it on his desk. And he, there's things that we don't want to say no to. Or there's things we don't agree with. Or God says, I don't want you going there. Or doing that. Or being in that situation. We don't agree with it. But sometimes we just have to do it. To say no to it. And Ricky did. He did. Put up a fight. But eventually he did the right thing. And that's our challenge. That's a radical obedience. To say no to ungodliness. To worldly passions. And to live self-controlled lives where we learn to say no to overwhelming emotions that would want us to burst out in anger against someone, or we want to control ourselves when we are tempted to lie to make ourselves look better or to get out of a jam, or we have to live self-controlled lives when we uh, are tempted to tell someone off, whether it be with a car horn rolling down the window to say things at them, or someone at the store that uh, puts their cart in front of us. All these situations are with a family member that's difficult to deal with. We all have things where we have to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And then he adds, verse 12, in this present age. And he was speaking to people here on the island of Crete. And there was nothing to support the Christian age on the island of Crete, just like today. There's nothing really to support the Christian faith in this area, especially, but in, in our culture in general. So we have to repeatedly go back to what does God say? If God says, I don't want you going there, this is wrong, this is sinful, you've got to just go with that. You've got to turn your shirt inside out. And that's what he did. And he went back to his desk and got back with being a student. And he survived. He didn't like it, but he did it. God never says you have to like saying no to stuff you want to do, or you don't have to like declining an invitation to go somewhere where you know you shouldn't be. God just says do it. Yes. Put up a fight, but eventually did the right thing. And I have a handful of students that will not do that. They will not say no to things that are destroying their lives because they'd rather do those things than the right thing. And we know a lot of adults as well. So God's grace calls us to radical obedience. If we're going to enjoy the blessing of grace, we've got to take on the responsibility of obedience. Number three, God's grace calls us to a grand future. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about what we've seen so far. First of all, God's grace has appeared to all men bringing salvation. The greatest gift ever given. This radical obedience. We're called to this deliberate life of saying no to things that are self-destructive. Then now we're told about a grand future. Uh, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here the Christian life knows the future. The Christian knows the future they might not know every day, and every day can bring a lot of roller coaster up and ups and downs. Just during our meet and greet, we learned about a big down uh, that someone's going through right now. And we may not know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know who holds tomorrow regarding the future. 
And to these believers who are struggling with obedience and God's grace and, and living in a minority culture there on the island of Crete, they're told they can wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Here Paul doesn't tell Titus to tell them, well, they're waiting around for Jesus. That's not the idea here, but they're waiting for Jesus in eager anticipation. They're waiting for Jesus in eager anticipation. That is, we know he's coming, it's just a matter of when. We know scripture is silent on exactly when, and Jesus may return in our lifetime, he may not. He did not return in the lifetime of those that uh, Titus was going to be teaching. That Christians always live with the knowledge that eternity is just around the corner, and we are waiting for it. If you've ever been like on, at a BART platform where you see people waiting for the BART train cars or, or waiting at a bus stop, usually a lot of times you'll see people waiting, and I know the few times I've been BART, you're always looking down the track. <laughs> you know, it should be here, and you're waiting with anticipation to get on, especially if you're going to a concert or to a ball game or you're going to visit family somewhere. You're eagerly waiting for that train to come. You're eagerly waiting with anticipation. And that's how we ought to see the return of Jesus. That despite the uncertainty of the modern day news cycle, despite people saying this and that about our future, or we're going downhill, or we're going uphill, you always know the thing you're waiting for is the return of Christ. And you live with that anticipation every day. It could be today that Christ returns. We always have something to look forward to. And what we look forward to is great. That is the return of our God through his son, Jesus Christ, to take us home to be with him forever. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we look to meet him in the air. What a blessed thing for Christians to look forward to. Instead of seeing the future as bleak and all they have to see is their death and and in decline of health and appearance and things like that. Christians can always look forward to even those things, even though those things will happen, those things will happen. The imminent return of Jesus Christ is always on the horizon. Lifting our eyes to look to a better place and to a world that God has prepared for us. What a blessing for us to live with a grand future. We always know what the future holds. Number four, God's grace calls us to a distinctive life. Verse 14, speaking of Jesus, Paul writes to Titus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good? Notice first the repetition of the theme that God gave. Um, we already saw in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared to all men and offers salvation. Paul returns to that theme by saying in verse 14, speaking of Jesus, he gave himself to redeem us. So the Father initiated the eternal plan. And here Jesus gave himself to that plan and gave himself as a sacrifice. But then, he didn't just leave us there. He says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify him for himself, a people that are his very own. 
First of all, it says to redeem us. The idea of redeeming in Scripture is to buy back. Uh, in ages past, we'd sing the song, How I Love the Great Redeemer. And whenever you see that in Scripture, the idea of redemption is the idea of being bought back from the imprisonment of sin. And the only way to release ourselves from this bottomless pit of sin is to be bought back or redeemed by the sacrifice or blood of Jesus Christ. But not just to be lifted out of the pit just to walk around, to fall back into the pit all over again, but redeemed, it says here, from all wickedness and to purify himself his own people. To purify for himself a people that are his very own. Understand, as you think back to the day that you were baptized, whether that be just a few years ago or decades ago or yesterday, that was the day of your redemption where not only were you forgiven, but you were called to this distinctive life where you spend every day getting rid of the destructive things and saying no to the things that harm you that got you into that place to start with, of being stuck. And every day is lived for God. But you also belong to Him. It says here, again this text, and to purify Him for Himself, a people that are His very own. I want you to think about that for a moment. There are some that may not have that strong of a connection to their family. Either painful things have happened in the past, or they live far away from their family. They don't, they're just not as close as they'd like to be, and they don't feel like they interact enough. Or there's people that feel like sometimes they don't belong within their own racial group, or they don't feel like they belong within their neighborhood, or they don't feel like they belong at their school, and they just feel disconnected. And we, we live in a world now of a lot of people that feel very disconnected though we have all these technologies that are supposed to connect us, social media, people feel disconnected. Many don't feel loved. They don't feel like they're part of the place where they live. They don't feel like they have friends. They don't feel, I mean, you got to see lunchtime, uh, the school where I teach. When I venture out of my classroom, I'll walk through and I'll see many people that are by themselves. And it looks like they'd rather be with a group, but... For one reason or another, they don't feel like they fit in and they have to be by themselves for what must be a very torturous 30 minutes where others are with their groups where they feel by themselves. Sometimes they sit alone in the hallway. Sometimes they stand outside in the quad areas, we call it. And there are many adults in our world, too, that live a life of loneliness that they'd rather not live because they feel disconnected. But what Paul is telling Titus here, that even though these Cretans are now living this different lifestyle, they belong to their God. And they may not feel like they belong to Cretan culture anymore, and that's a good thing, but they probably are isolated at work. They're probably not told the same jokes that everybody else is included in. They're not included on the same group text that involve a lot of impure things. Uh, and they're left out of a lot of things. But Paul tells them, make sure that they know they belong to God. That he has his own people, these people that he's redeemed. And he says finally in verse 4, a people that are eager to do what is good. Here we find in the Christian life, we're not just saying no to sin. But we're saying yes to what is good and what is right. Whether it be generosity, compassion towards others, 
telling the truth instead of lying, working hard and being a blessing in our culture rather than a drag upon it. Whatever that good is, that's what we are called to as Christians. Whether it be a mediator in a situation of conflict because we want both sides to talk things out, that is something good we can do. Maybe it's helping a neighbor that doesn't quite know how to communicate with others as far as what their need is. But you know you can step in and listen. and You can find ways to help. That is doing good. Being a blessing here to this local church and different ways you know you can give. That is a blessing. Paul's here telling Titus, make sure they know they ought to be eager to do what is good. They were eager to do the wrong thing before they were Christians. They were pirates of the Caribbean, running the wrong direction rapidly. Here we're doing the opposite. We're looking for good. We're looking for opportunities to help. Just like with Clay Thompson in that earlier description. He saw a need or someone brought a need to his attention. And he took time out to make sure one young man had a wheelchair that looked really sharp and that could do a lot of things. And that young man's life was lit up in a wonderful way by what one person did for him at one point in time. Let us be those people. Let us be eager to find things, not wait for them to come to us, but find good things to do and make sure they're what God wants us to do and use the wisdom and the judgment that he's given us to meet that need in the best way. Hopefully we've grasped the grace of God. A great gift has been given and there's a great responsibility for now us to live according what this gift calls us to do. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song to encourage us. And at the end of every lesson, there's always an opportunity, as there is all throughout life, for someone to respond in some way to the gospel message. It may be a conviction to go forward, to recognize, hey, I need to change my life. I need to turn it around and repent. I need to seek this one who has died for me and, and give my life to him and receive this gift. And be baptized to have sins washed away. There's always an opportunity for that to take place in someone's life. But here, this book was written to people that already were believers. Sometimes we just have to go back to the things we said we would do or recommit ourselves to the things that we know that are the right and important things to do. This last song encourages us to do that, whether it be to make a need known publicly or to make it be known privately, whatever it is. Don't just let something stay unaddressed. Address it now. If you are called to or you feel like, hey, I could use the help of other people to take on this challenge.